On this episode of the Resetter Podcast, have I got a heartfelt conversation for you with an incredibly beautiful man. His name is Mark Groves. And what he calls himself, and I love this, is that he's exploring and philosophizing the complexities of human connection. And that's exactly what we talk about. We go into detail on how you can create relationships that match your values. What do you do when there are challenges in your relationships? How do you take radical responsibility for your relationships? And one piece of this conversation that really got my brain excited is how we can be curious about our relationships as possible tools for our own expansion, for our own growth. So there is so much to learn in this conversation with Mark. And I would say that that one of my favorite pieces is around the mid part of the conversation, we really talked about how men and women communicate differently. And as a lot of you know, I've been really focused on how to create a world where women feel heard. And what I learned in this conversation with Mark is we we also have to create a world where men feel heard, where men can be more emotive. And so this is an incredible conversation where we explore that. And I would say that neither of us have the answers, but we all had a, we both had a lot of questions and we had a lot of insight in talking to each other about how do we create a world where women feel heard and men are allowed to be more emotional. And this is going to be such a gift to so many of the relationships in your life. So Mark Groves, founder of Create the Love, I really, truly, from the bottom of my heart, am excited to bring this episode to you. Enjoy. Hey, Dr. Mindy here, and welcome to season four of the Resetter podcast. Please know that this podcast is all about empowering you to believe in yourself again. If you have a passion for learning, if you're looking to be in control of your health and take your power back, this is the podcast for you. Enjoy. Hey, Resetters, as we step into the new year, I am so thrilled to invite you on an extremely transformative journey with me in my Reset Academy. So check this out. If you're ready to kickstart your fasting and health journey, which I know so many of you have reached out to us and asked how you customize a fasting lifestyle for you, my Reset Academy is the absolute best place to be. So here's what you get in the Academy. And I like to think of it in terms of a complete picture. So imagine being surrounded by people who understand your journey, who are passionate for fasting, who want to lift you up and will support you every step of the way. My Academy is not just me, my team, but it is an incredible group of people that are all dedicated to building fasting lifestyles and supporting each other in it. This is why I created the Reset Academy. So when you join, you gain access to all the exclusive calls where my team and I share the latest insights, we answer your burning questions, and we guide you towards your health goals. That's not it. We didn't stop there. By becoming a member, you're not just investing in a membership, but you're investing in yourself. I am such a fan of setting you up to win this year. 
and my academy is the best place I know to do that. I want to keep you focused. I want you to customize this for you, and I want you to succeed at your health goals this year. End of story. So if you're ready to unlock your fullest potential and embrace a fasting lifestyle, join me. If it feels good, join me. And let's make this year an incredible year for us all. So all you got to do is go visit drmindypels.com slash Reset Academy to become a member. I can't wait to welcome you. I can't wait to see you on the Zoom calls. I can't wait to be in community with you. And most importantly, let's get your health goals handled and let's do this together. It's so much better together. Together. So that's drmindypels.com slash Reset Academy. Excited to see you there. I'm just I'm going to jump in and say thank you for being here, Mark. I really appreciate you coming on the Resetter Podcast. We're excited to I, I'm excited to have this chat with you. Oh my god, pumped to be here! Can't wait to jam. No idea what you're going to ask, which that's Excellent. the adventure. That's the event. That's I, see. Let me tell you, I, there's a lot of places I want to go with this conversation, but I've I'm in the process of writing my fifth book, and I'm oh, totally geeking out on words. And so as I was doing a gentle preparation for this interview, um, there were a couple words you used that just really sparked interest of my brain. And let me start with the first phrasing, which is radical responsibility, that you took radical responsibility for your life. What is that and how do we all accomplish that? Well, you know, I think the context of even taking responsibility for one's life is pretty daunting sometimes. Yeah. You know, it can can feel overwhelming. And and I think what's going on unconsciously there is that responsibility, if you say, okay, everything that's currently in my life is there because I'm saying yes to it. That's a mm. pretty basic fact. Um, but then if you accept that fact, now you're like, well, shit, if I said yes to it, then that means I can say no to some things. Mm. And if I actually sit with the truth that I'm choosing everything in my life, including my habits, my rituals, my reactivity, then that means I could have chosen differently. And I think that's where we hit usually an unconscious block because when you wake up to the idea that you have choice, radical responsibility that says, I'm not actually going to tolerate less than my best self. I'm not going to tolerate less than my most optimal potential. I'm not going to tolerate any behaviors that I know are actually not helpful to relationships and not conducive to that type of life I want to create and also not aligned with my values. So many of us are actually making choices day in and day out that are not aligned with our values. And then we wonder why we're anxious and depressed because the choices we're, we're making are saying, I don't actually even live the thing that is at my mm. most core important to me. And so because when we're aware of radical responsibility, we then can look back at our whole life, usually unconsciously, and we go, oh, shoot, why did I choose those things then? And so most of us actually stop there. And I would say that that is actually the source of so many addictions, whether that's mm. normalized ones like, you know, our phones or shopping or sometimes mm. food or even exercise. That one can be celebrated. You yeah. know, the, we have these distractive techniques that are really about not paying attention to the dissonance that comes when you are making choices that don't align with what you want and who you are. Here's an interesting part of what you just said. 
how many people do you think actually know what their values are? You know, very few actually sit down and write that out. I remember I interviewed uh, Stan Tacken, who's like one of the world's foremost psychologists and relationship experts. And he said, if you look at the main reason that relationships fail, it's because people fail to make clear the agreements at the start. Mm. Mm. And so I don't think till we have till we continue to violate our own boundaries or experience the violation of our boundaries, you know, maybe we're dating someone toxic, maybe we are someone toxic, maybe we're experiencing a drug addiction or whatever it is. Most of us think of rock bottoms as being something like waking up in a ditch or drinking too much mm. and crashing a car. But rock bottoms can be experienced in health and losing your job. And, but they don't, we wait for these deep moments of mm. suffering before we change. And that's when we recognize oh, wait, there's something out. And because our society has normalized this idea that if you're depressed or anxious, there's something wrong with you and you actually need to treat that. And I'm not saying mm -hmm. there's not a time and a place for intervention, pharmaceutical interventions, but anxiety is actually an indicator that you're not, you're not actually living a life in alignment with what your values are. It's also an indicator that you're not expressing uh, your core emotions. You're not connected to one or more of them. And uh, I think that's rare too, to be connected to our core emotions. So I just had this really interesting thought. You know, there's a lot of talk about how we came out of the pandemic and everybody's got a mental health challenge now that yeah. from the remnants of that. And if I take the the definition of anxiety that you just gave, my thought is the way I view the pandemic is it was a pattern interrupt. It was a moment where everybody was forced to sit down and we had to sit there for so long that we had to reevaluate our life. Yeah. And then I'm wondering if we, as we've come out of the pandemic, if we had hunches about we weren't living in accordance with our values, relationships that people were locked at home with that, that weren't <laughs> yeah. necessarily serving them anymore. And if we didn't make those changes coming out of the pandemic, Perhaps that's a piece of why anxiety is at at the peak is the people who didn't who saw a glimpse of something that needed to change in their relationships but actually haven't has have chosen to not change that. So many of us exist in relationships that we don't have hard conversations. We let the relationship steer itself like a child, you know. Mm -hmm. We respond the same way in conflict that we learned usually unconsciously as kids. Like most of us don't take responsibility for the relationship we want to create. We're not even saying like, hey, I need to look. There's a lot of people these days, at least the information is readily available. When I was 20, if you were going through a breakup, you just listened to boys to men, you know, and you got more sad <laughs> or so whatever was out. It's really true. Thank we God don't do Adele that anymore. didn't exist. I mean, <laughs> Adele would have been a killer. I'm so glad that music wasn't out there. All joking aside, I think you're right. First off, the pandemic was an incredible psychological stress. It was a collective trauma. Um, mm -hmm. And I don't mean just the experience of having to confront our mortality, which like when you think about confronting mortality, we don't look at it because the idea of confronting your mortality is too much for the system generally, mm -hmm. because then we recognize our temporary time on this planet, which then when you look at people who are in palliative care, the five regrets of the dying is a book written by Bronnie Ware. She was a palliative care nurse. And she saw these five things that most people regretted when they got to mm -hmm. death's door. So we all experienced that. We also experienced 
you know, a lot of um, like psychological techniques used to shape our behavior. That's also, there's ethical, there's always ethical considerations about the use of nudge tactics, which is what they call the psychological techniques used by public health. And so that actually has an impact on us. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I think for us not to look at what's occurred and actually acknowledge that there has been a collective trauma. And now what you're saying about relationship. Yeah. COVID had people at home with relationships that they were often avoiding at their work, you know? And so it amplified what was already there. Yeah. And, and it also, for a lot of couples, they finally had time together and they found resolution and they've deepened their intimacy And I mean, it really forced us to, we don't normally spend 24 hours a day with our partner, which that's not necessarily healthy either, because there's no balance of individuality. But I agree with what you said, there's, there was a pause, and that pause we can use to start to question who we are, which is a healthy thing to start to be like, oh, why do I do what I do? Why do I tolerate what I tolerate from myself or other people? Yeah. I mean, I've made radical changes post coming out of the pandemic and um, with by asking myself that question of like, why am I doing this? What what and what do I want the future to look like? Like there was a lot of introspection that went through me. Um, And one of the things about relationships that I a question I've been asking myself lately has been. What's the purpose of of relationships? You know, like if we really think about it human connection feels really good. I mean, we can just have beautiful conversations like we're having now. We can have friendships that just fill us up. But when we start to step into these long-term relationships, whether it's a an intimate one, a friendship one, a work one, there's a whole nother level. It moves from being this sweet connection to being what I think is like a growth tool. And we learn so much about ourselves in relationships. And I don't think yeah. we talk about that enough. So I, I'd be curious what your thoughts are on literally what is the purpose of connecting and being in long-term relationships with people? Well, you make a good point that, you know, we don't, we're not taught relating in school very seldom. I think like, you know, let's just throw a number, probably like 0.001% of education platforms actually teach it in schools. And so mm. what happens is, is that you have us all wanting to be, I think it's also ironic that you get to be like 15 and 16 and all of a sudden you're like, oh, uh, I guess I'm just going to enter relationships and be good at them. Yet there's been right. no outside <laughs> intervention yes. to teach yes. you. So you replicate the relational patterns of your parents generally and what you've learned in romantic comedies and Disney and also probably pornography too. You know, so this is how we're informed till we start to actually look and learn and start to take courses or listen to podcasts like yours. And so the purpose to when you look at the long term impact of healthy relating versus unhealthy relating, there's a study done by Harvard. It's the longest running study looking at well-being. And it shows that the greatest predictor of your health at 80 is actually the quality of your relationships at age 50. So not your blood pressure, not your cholesterol, Mm. the quality of your relationships and not just your romantic relationships, any type of relationship. So that shows you that how we relate has a dramatic impact on our health. So relationships and their purpose in our lives is, you also said this too, is to be a mirror to our potential because Mm. any trigger 
or any friction in relationship is an opportunity for you to grow. And yeah. I could tell you when I was younger, when I got feedback from a partner, I wasn't thinking, oh, this is amazing. Thank you so much for the mirror of my possibility. <laughs> I don't understand. No, definitely not. <laughs> I remember complaining to my dad once on the phone about my girlfriend in my like early 20s. And my dad said to me, oh my God, Mark, I, she had, was complaining about something which she had the right to complain about. So if you're listening, you were valid. And I said to her, well, <laughs> it's so bad. I don't even want to say what I said, but hey, it's all about growth. I'm very different now. But I said, uh, well, if it's so bad, why don't you leave? Mm. I told my dad I said this and he was like, Mark, oh my God. And I remember I didn't necessarily understand what he was saying at the time, but I, you know, it's one of those seeds that plants in your psyche. Yeah. He said, a relationship is a separate entity. There is you and there is her. And then there is the investment in the separate organism. And what you just did was not invest in it. And wow. Yeah. And I think when we can start to see that feedback from a partner, if delivered in a healthy way, um, is actually an invitation to our evolution. And yeah. the purpose of relationships from a biological perspective is we need other people. Like when yeah. you are lonely, the same parts of your brain light up as when you experience physical pain. And the, what is posited about that is that it will draw you to seek out help, to seek out mm -hmm. others. So we are tribal by species, by nature, and we need other people. And I think what got confused and still does in the language of don't need nobody, don't need a man, don't all that stuff, which is valid from the cultural experience of divorce and financial mm. abuse and all that kind of stuff, is that you do need somebody, but yeah. when you depend on somebody who's unhealthy and you place your well-being and your self-worth in another person's hands who is not reliable, you're gonna get hurt. And so- yeah. I don't think as a culture, we're coming back, but I don't think as a culture, we really explain that nuance, especially to young girls and, and to yeah. young boys. And so what happens is, is we don't necessarily have the ability to, like the greatest struggle people have is, how do I be in a relationship and maintain who I am? Yes. Most of us give up ourselves for love yeah. or give up relationships to maintain self. Ooh. Yeah. And you actually, that's so powerful because where my brain is really grabbing onto is this idea that there's actually three entities in a relationship. There's each individual and then there's the relationship. Yeah. And I think you could probably say that about friendship. You could probably yeah, say that about sure. work relationships. So if you look at those three entities and you're somebody who's into self-growth, which I, I, I feel deeply that that's your your plight in life is a growth mindset. So you've got somebody who's willing to own their stuff, somebody who's willing to keep working on themselves. And then you've got the other person in the relationship who's not as keen on that. And so they're kind of staying stuck in wherever they are on their human journey. And if they're not doing introspective work, you're doing a ton of introspective work. And now you're coming together into the relationship Sometimes, and this can, this, I've noticed this in many relationships in my life, that sometimes you feel like you're the hardest working person in the relationship yeah. and it becomes difficult, but yet 
when you look at that on the flip side of relationships is really honoring and letting somebody be who they are and not trying to turn them into onto your passions. So do we have any like tried and true ideas on how we take the entity of relationships and really pour into that entity so that both humans, both people in the relationship can grow as humans? Yeah, such a good question. And I would imagine a conundrum that many people face is this idea that I feel like I'm the one leaning in. I'm the one suggesting the book or the podcast or the course or the therapist or whatever it is. And that you'll notice is often true in a relationship is that there's one person who's sort of more extended and the other person who's more uh, shelled up. And there's lots of different language for that. There's the term overfunctioning versus underfunctioning. You might think of one as being anxiously attached and the other one avoidantly attached. And so when we consider that, one thing I would always invite someone who seems to be the one constantly growing and changing and then being like, hey, do you want to come along? The first part is, is that a pattern? Like, is that Mm. a childhood pattern? Mm. Were you trying Mm. to take care of other people, help people, change people, heal people? Because what happens is, is we overextend ourselves and send this invitation. And then we're continuously disappointed when they don't show up. Yeah. Yeah. And that, if we look, is that a familiar feeling that you had as a kid where people weren't showing up? You desperately wanted someone to. Maybe you became a perfectionist. Maybe you became, maybe you're now a therapist, a coach, a caregiver, because that's so often the pattern is like you become and start to monetize the very survival strategy that, that you Fascinating. had. Fascinating. Right. So I would say most people that are in caretaking roles generally came to that from the experience of overfunctioning as a kid. Survival, right? So it comes from survival. Wow. I want yeah. to maintain this environment. I want to maintain safety. And if I take care of everyone, maybe that'll help. And, you know, it's just a natural skill set we move towards. So the first part is the recognition of the pattern. The second part is I recognized this when I was healing anxious attachment and healing this chasing my partner is mm. I remember thinking, well, gosh, if I keep inviting her to show up differently but I keep standing in the space that she needs to step into, then how can she? Mm -hmm. And I think it's on like a micro level, that's, hey, I'm texting this person who hasn't responded yet. Let them have the space to move towards you. When we think about the third entity, I think about it also as this sacred space between us and other. And it is this invitation for them to stand fully in that space too. So if I keep doing everything for another person, they never have to become an adult. If I keep Mm. doing everything for them, they never actually have to do it for themselves. And then I resent Mm. them that I'm doing everything. But meanwhile, I'm the one doing everything. Right. So this sense of radical responsibility is like, oh, wait, what's familiar for me is leaving myself. What's familiar for me is being disappointed. I say, hey, read this book. This would help us. For when we start to actually step back from that, we say, hey, I learned this thing. I found it really helpful for me to be able to understand us. And I really want to create just a deeply Mm -hmm. connective relationship with you. And is that something you're interested in? Mm, So beautifully said. Well, a different way, because what you're doing is most of us shrink 
and continue to reach down to pull up instead of saying, hey, like you kind of think about it like two adults facing each other. Instead of right. parent or infantilizing your, your partner by treating them like a child, you're like, hey, show up, come over. Right. And here's the invitation. And sometimes I remember asking um, Julie Gottman and John Gottman this. They wrote a book called uh, Seven First States or Seven, mm-hmm. Seven Dates. I can't remember, but it's an incredible book and it's seven essential conversations all couples should have. And I said, well, if the other person doesn't accept the invitation to read the book, that's a red flag, right? Like, you should kick them to the curb. And she was like, Mark, no. <laughs> I still remember. That's a red flag. Yeah, she was like, you should get curious as to why they're resistant Mm. about the book. Mm. Maybe they have another avenue they'd rather learn through. Maybe they're scared of what it's going to bring up for them. But at the end of the day, the truth is that you can only invite people to show up and there will be a timeline where you can no longer wait. And after Mm. you wait past that timeline, the cost starts to become your your own physiology. So I uh, hope that answers your question. Yeah, no, that was really good. And the word curious is a new word that I'm obsessed with as well, because I think it's a better way to look at a challenging situation is to be curious about it, as opposed to be like, blamey about it, you know? So what? um, let's say you're in a relationship that is tough and it doesn't feel like the other person's doing the work that you would like them to do. What does it look like to help them to to actually articulate that like curiosity and leading them into a place of like I love what you said where you know are you wanting to bring a different creation to the relationship that is that is the word creations even amazing like that is a really interesting interesting way to look at that but how can we say this to our partners in a way that doesn't feel threatening, that feels like an invitation, that feels like a new dimension. You know, a lot of the people that are listen to this podcast have been married a very long time. Yeah. And it's very easy to fall back into old patterns. And it's you have to stay awake. And really, if you want to evolve that marriage or that relationship, it takes constantly reinventing your something as simple as the language you use with each other. hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah. So how do we do that? How do we keep that sort of spark through our question asking so that we can see where that that partner is at along the journey? Well, a few things to just first say. One is that... uh, your relationship, we're going to be recreating relationships in a different way when we orient to them from a place of radical truth. So mm. most of us, our relationships are not the place that we are all of ourselves. And mm. there's a number of reasons for that. Like Harriet Lerner talks about how, I remember asking her, like, why do women seek out relational information more than men? Yeah, Because that's my experience. I'm sure it's your experience yep. with audience, yep. right? And she said, every subordinate group must learn the needs and nuances of the dominant group. And she said, so what that means is, if a woman didn't learn how to dance with and become emotionally fluent, it could mean death. It could mean rape. It could mean pain. And so it is natural that the health of a relationship tends evolutionarily to have fallen on women's shoulders. I think we can all agree that in our experience, certainly from a heteronormative perspective, 
That's true. It feels like the barometer of the health of the relationship, women tend to be more attuned to. Yep. And this can be true in same-sex relationships too, where one partner just tends to be more attuned to it. Right. And and so there's just the the context of that I think is important because when I was talking about over-functioning versus under-functioning, that like I'm going to do all the emotional work, no one person can do enough work for two. It's impossible. So well said. Like you have to be met. And most people are used to not being met. So the first qualifier I'll say is that your conversations might come with a fear that your relationship might end. That's usually why we avoid hard conversations. And that's usually why we avoid invitations to meet us. Mm. Now, I'm not saying to become some superhero. I'm saying Mm. to meet us. That's Mm. not an expectation or a standard that is unachievable. Mm. So you're not asking for the world when you say, hey, we need to learn how to be, to communicate emotionally together. Mm. Here's what I think would help facilitate that. It's really important to me that I understand your needs and your wants and your struggles. That's important to me. Mm. Is it important to you that mine are understood? Some people might say no, Mm. but you got to ask the questions. And here is the radical truth about this is that when you become fully liberated in your relationship, and for a lot of people who've been married 10, 15, 20 years, they got married under different pretenses. They got married for different reasons. Yes. So at 32, 35, 55, 65, they're all of a sudden like, holy shit, I'm in this relationship and I've forgotten about myself. Yes. And so my first invitation is come fully alive. Like come fully Mm -hmm. alive, everything you love, bring it into your life. Because I could tell you that if my partner, because I now have this perspective, if my partner came to me and said, I want to do this. This brings me alive. I'd be like, sign me up. I might not wow. do the dancing part very well, but I'll do it because it <laughs> matters to you. Wow. Because if you don't grow with your partner, your partner will grow away from you. And by the time they leave, they'll already be gone. And then you'll want to change. And so my invitation is change when the request comes. Because mm-hmm. I see that so much, especially, and it's due to so much, it's not anyone's fault. But the way we pattern in relationship is in, is generally inherited. And so mm. men don't, don't be the one who invite the expansion. They sometimes do. And then mm. they'll experience the op- you know, the similar circumstance in the opposite direction. But what happens, women initiate divorce more than men. Yep. By the time they first say something, it's about two years till they walk out the door. Mm. When women have a challenging emotional situation, about 60-something percent of the time, I can't remember the exact stat, they turn towards friends. When mm-hmm. men have a challenging situation, it's about the same turning towards their partner. So when men lose relationship, they tend to lose their emotional support. And so that's why I see this all the time in my DMs, like, she left, now I'm getting it. And that's beautiful, you're getting it. And it might be too late to get it, but at least you're getting it. And so my invitation to people is like, come fully alive, because, and what would bring your partner fully alive? Because if you're resenting your partner that you're not doing things you love, that's your fault, not theirs. And so when you come fully alive, the relationship is invited to come fully alive. You are liberated. And although they might have resistance to your liberation, the relationship is actually now liberated 
from the patterns of silence, resentment, holding in. Because man, being with a woman who is not censored, to me is the hottest thing in the world. Like I look at my wife (laughs) and she tells me the truths I don't like, but damn, is it hot. Yeah. Every man needs to think like that. How do we replicate you? That's pretty, that's pretty impressive. It's only once you garner the gold from their feedback. When you finally, for, for a lot of people, they don't know how to hold the shame that comes with feedback. This idea, like if you're telling me I need to grow or change, then basically what I now am thinking unconsciously is I'm not good enough. I can't take care of you. I'm not enough for you. Instead of, holy shit, she's telling me how to become powerful. And if I can meet her in this power or her him or whatever, then we're liberated. Amazing. So I've teamed up with Tony Horton. Do you know Tony Horton? He was the creator of P90X, one of the most revolutionary at-home fitness programs. And we created together a new fitness program called Power Sync 60. And it is literally, this program's never been done. It is a revolutionary 60-day program for both men and women. So here's why I want you to join us, is that we literally created Power Sync 60 with you in mind. So it doesn't matter if you're a cycling woman, a postmenopausal woman, or a man, One of the things I brought to Tony was that when we work out, we have to think about our hormones. And he had never done that in the millions of workouts that he's created in his lifetime. We also included a free bonus meal plan and a customized tailor way you can eat right for yourself. Also, of course, we put some fasting in there and it was a beautiful meeting of the minds. So this is like a passion project that I'm so excited to share with you. And in order to get it, all you got to do is visit drmindy.org and use the code PS60PELS. So PS60 and then my last name, PELS, P-E-L-Z, to get 20% off. And you get lifetime access to the program. So that's drmindy.org and you use the code PS60PELS to join all of us. I'm actually doing this myself right now. So come join me, my community on this incredible journey. I am so proud to bring this to you. You know, my parents have been married 60 years. Wow. 60 plus years. Yeah. And so I've had a front row view of a very successful relationship. Now, it is also, you know, a 50s, you know, they're, they, they were like, the I call them the 50s couple where it was very, yeah. you know, gender based and very traditional. Um, but when they, when they had their 40th wedding anniversary, I asked my dad, I said, what's the secret, dad? Or maybe it was their 50th. I was like, what's the secret to a, a lasting marriage? And his first thing he said was, when the other person wants to change, let them. Mm. And you might just be amazed that what they're changing into is something that you want to join. Oh, that's so beautiful. Isn't that incredible? That's so beautiful. I remember Dr. Alexander Solomon, who's like a world-renowned therapist. She said, um, you will have many marriages in your lifetime, and sometimes it will be to different people. 
Right. And I, I love that. This like invitation, because if we expect our partners to be the same, that means we expect ourselves to be the same. And then we're projecting that on our partners. And often we're afraid of our partners changing because we are afraid they'll grow away from us. We think that it's changing the agreements of the relationship. Mm. But if, if you're not developing new interests, new directions, new passions, then likely you're stagnant. And I think it's Tony Robbins who says, if you're not growing, you're dying. And yeah. I think about that a lot. Like a lot of us are afraid to expand because we're afraid it will fracture the relationship. But what yeah. ends up happening is we end, we, end, we end up internalizing that fracture. We end up disconnected from our own souls. We end yes. up with anxiety. We yes. end up depressed. We end up uh, with poor relationships, with substances, with everything. Yes. And they become these coping mechanisms. And as Gabor Mate says, the wrong question is why the addiction? The right question is why the pain? Right. Yeah. And, you know, it's interesting because um, what I'm seeing just in speaking to a lot of the women that are listening to this podcast is that when we go through the menopause experience, we have this neurochemical armor that starts to come down. You know, our, our, our hormones are changing. Our neurotransmitters are shifting. And all of a sudden, what I'm realizing and seeing in my own life and in friends and in our community is the traumas that you haven't healed are bubbling to the surface. Yeah. And then you're in a relationship, if you're in a marriage or a committed relationship, um, those traumas come up and they start to influence the relationship. And it can be very difficult. And when I look at the research on menopausal women, you know, 70% of um, menopausal women are the are 70% of of divorces that happen over 40 were initiated by women, just like you said Makes earlier. Sense. Yeah. 45 between 45 and 55 is the most common time for a woman to commit suicide. Wow. So you are you are literally looking at women once they hit their 40s that that become and have start to have this internal conflict that they don't know what to do with. And John Gray interviewed him on, on my podcast, and he said that like 90% of people that go to therapists are women. So I want to I go back to this idea where as women, we are, our, our internal drive is to go to the therapist, talk to a friend, like talk it out so we can move beyond it. And sometimes I think for men, it's you, you all don't, we haven't, our society hasn't given you that platform to do that. And so it becomes harder for men to be able to process some of the feelings that are going on inside their mind. If you're in a heterosexual relationship, you know, what can we do to help the men in our lives be able to be more expressive and process that, but not have it to always be us? That's that's the one doing that with them. Well, I mean, that, again, such a really important question and, and nuanced. I mean, the first thing I'll say is that men need men. You know, men need men's right. groups. Men need yep. spaces with other men that there is actually openness to talk about challenges. You know, I yes. think about a lot of friendships, which there, which there's nothing wrong with having male friends that you just talk about the game with or golf with or work out with. But can we find places and spaces that are actually about opening up male vulnerability? The reason those generally, I would say, all men need men only spaces for that is because as soon as a woman is in the room, it changes. 
because we go into performative peacocking, you know, like all of a sudden we're like, oh, there's a chick here. Like I got to experience cool, you know, and, and just like a man would change a woman's space. It's interesting though, because like when you think about emotional fluency, men are not socialized to be emotionally fluent, right? Like yeah. the acceptable emotions out of men tend to be anger and maybe happiness and, and just like blah, whatever that yep. emotion is. And, you know, when Brene Brown's research, she talks about how when a woman, when a man cries in front of a woman, she actually loses respect for him. Really? She starts to not trust him. And you think about that. Yeah, that's in her, I think her first TED talk. It might be in her second one. And that's she talks crazy. about it in one of her books too. And so when I think about that, I think about how we're socialized. And when you think of when, when men start to step into emotionality, which usually becomes because they don't have a choice, they hit a rock bottom, their wife leaves them, their partner breakup, whatever it is, that they now are opening this box that they've shoved away in a closet because society mm -hmm. says, listen, we want emotionally fluent men. We desperately need them. Oh, wait, go to war, kill people, mm. and do most of the world's most dangerous jobs. And if you show emotion, you're probably going to get called a sissy. And if mm. you show emotion, your partner might actually reject that emotion because they don't know how to trust male emotion, which there could be many right. reasons for that. So when a man chooses to step into emotional fluency, he is ultimately going against everything. He is going wow. against all the programming that says this is what a man is. So it's a beautiful fracturing that occurs because ultimately what the man is saying by embodying it and becoming it is that I decide what a man is, not mm -hmm. society. But in order to do that, they have to be ready to lose membership to define masculinity. Now, you also look at the way the media has portrayed men and certainly truth to some of it, but is toxic masculinity. Men are bad. That yeah. messaging, especially to young boys without nuance, has them where they don't know how to have a healthy relationship to masculinity. You know, wow. I had someone I remember once asked me, like, how do I teach my son that? I was just going to say, right. I, I have a 20-year-old son. I was like, tell me how we do this. Well, I remember her saying, like, how do I teach him to be masculine and have emotion, express emotion? And I said, well, teach him that they're not connected. They have no relation. Emotionality is a human experience. Mm -hmm. It is not male or female. What we notice is that how you're raised and what you're exposed to changes, you know, how you're going to yeah. express and what is safe for you. Because if you learned, even as a woman, that anger is not safe, we often hear that, right? Like she's yeah. too much, she's crazy, she's this. Yeah. Then they'll shut down from their emotion. Again, remember how I said anxiety is a symptom of repressed right. emotion. So if you don't have connection, to grief, anger, joy, like yeah. core feelings, then you're, it's going to show up as what Hillary Jacobs Handel would call an inhibitory emotion, which is anxiety. So when we consider inviting our partner to start to speak more emotionally, I think the first part is to put into context that however old that man is versus however old you are, is the amount of years that he has been conditioned to be one way. Right. So, yes. so if you're 30, you got 30 years of a head start on emotional fluency. 
Yeah. So what I noticed when I started to step more into that, and I was in sales, so I knew how to use language, but I didn't know how to use language about feelings because there were so many unprocessed things. Like I would often shut down, which is more of a male behavior to become avoidant, to shut down, to um, withdraw. Stonewall is the term. And it took me a while to lean in, but I had a partner who sometimes would get reactive to it because we were processing stuff together. But what I, I had a partner who I asked, like, I might get these words wrong. Because I remember mm. a woman I was dating, I said something and she would like react to the words. And I'm like, wait, that's not what I meant. Like, just give mm. me a second to like find. Because mm. it's not dissimilar to a toddler learning language. And I don't mean that to like infantilize men. I just mean that the process of putting words to feelings, like right now, a part of me feels, that's a really important part in delineation of language. A lot of us say, I am angry. I am sad. But what happens when you say I am is you must become everything after that. And when you mm. say I am sad, you now can't be something else. So if you say a part of me feels, now you've oh. distanced yourself from the feeling. So you're, you are not the feeling. And then you also give space for other parts. Like, you know, someone getting engaged might feel anxious. And if they just are anxious, then that actually might destabilize the whole curiosity that they have. And because there might be a part of them that's excited. There might be a part of them that's afraid, right? Right. And so we have to create space through language. You were talking about the importance of language. We have to create space through the language we use to create space for all of us because we're complex. And I think when men accept that reality that they are complex emotional beings, which usually happens because we have to figure that out. Right. You know, there's a saying that angry, anger is sad's bodyguard. And I think that's very much true that anger, when we don't have space for grief, grief gets expressed as anger. But when we have space for grief, both exist. I also heard that anger is, is, is a form of creating power over somebody. You know, it's like we get angry and I love that idea of it, it, you know, it's sadness, you know, sadness is bodyguard. And it's like, well, there's no room for where sadness can go. And if you're feeling sad in a relationship and you're feeling powerless, it's like anger will show up to try to grab power. So uh, that is beautifully said. W one of my thoughts as I'm listening to you is so fascinating. Uh, you know, I've been really in the trenches trying to understand what women need right now in this modern world. Because feminism the, the, it has really taken us only so far, you know, it's taken us to this place where we feel, we actually feel like we need to be less emotional. We need to be more manlike to, to be able to sit at the table right, with right. men. And, and yet that's what I think as women, the beautiful part, if you look at us hormonally, is we have this wide, estrogen and progesterone together make us very emotional. We have a big spectrum of emotions. Whereas when you look at men, you guys are run primarily by testosterone. It typically is a hormone that, that doesn't make you as emotional. Mm -hmm. But when we look at society, we have put men and women in these camps and what, and I, and, and really categorized like women are overreactive and we have all these emotions and men are non-emotive. And what I'm hearing and what you're saying right now is that actually men would like to learn how to be more emotive. They'd like to learn how to connect more, but the society doesn't allow them 
the 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 space to do that is is that correct and how what what would be your vision of how we could create a society where men feel like they could be more emotive and could ha- have more of that human connection pour out of them from and, and be accepted yeah i mean and when i think about i have a son now who is almost 4 months old and i consider how do i engage with him in a way that he feels safe to feel and you know all that kind of stuff you know i think it starts with raising children in a way that they feel that they're safe to feel all the things and they're connected to emotion but they're also learning boundaries from their parents that's obviously very important and the other thing too is when i think about my wife and i navigating conflict which oh my gosh like talk about hormonal shifts during pregnancy yeah. and then post birth and me really needing to understand and contextualize what's going on and i'm now exposed to much more estrogen pheromonally yes. post birth and how does that impact my physiology there's all these things to consider and what i come back to often and i i think i heard peter atia say this that when he is really frustrated with his child he thinks about himself at 80 and mm-hmm. remembering that this could possibly that be the last time the last memory with their child mm-hmm. and so that invoking this like oh this is such an important moment and my yeah. stuff needs to go to the wayside and i've been really practicing that and i think having that emotional space so first off modeling it mom and dad mm-hmm. or dad and dad mom and mom the navigation needs to be when you're handling conflict that you model healthy conflict and repair mm. in front of the child. No not mm. every repair needs to occur in front of the child, but what's really important is we tend and most of us have memories of our parents fighting but usually behind closed doors. And mm. we almost never got to see mom say sorry or dad say sorry in front mm. of us. That's actually so mm. important. Modeling that Super with them. Important. The the creating a world that invites male emotion. You know I I forget who I heard talk about this, but the idea that men tend to emulate men who get women. That makes a lot of sense, right? Interesting. So if you see women choosing men who are like super muscular, super uh, masculine, and I'm talking in the definition of like guarded, quiet, but stern, warrior, you know, not too emotive, but like powerful, lots of money, all that kind of stuff, which... Historically, evolutionary, that makes sense. Women tend mm-hmm. to choose men who can procreate, protect, and provide. Right. And men tend to be drawn to women. This is, evolutionarily speaking, it's all the things that are sold to women, much like all those things that are sold to men. Become more virile, become more strong, become make more money. Women are sold this idea of, like, make sure you look young, never mm-hmm. age, and hip to waist ratios that is one of the right. you know for child it's a thing for shiny sure. hair you know lips in swollen yep. lips because that infers arousal you know yep. so when we can start to actually just monitor that those things are going on because they're just part of how we are evolutionary and biologically we could choose to say yes or no to what we want to but when i hear a woman talk about what kind of partner they want and this could be true of men but we'll stay with this part that you asked they're like i want someone emotionally capable who can dialogue who's trustworthy who's this this and this and i remember reading this study of speed dating where people put all the things they wanted 
But then as soon as they had a connection with someone, that went out the ah. window. And so we have to, I like to call it like, we have to take charge of our charge. Mm. Because a lot of the times I'll hear someone say, I just can't help who I have chemistry with. And I'll say to them, but that's like, that means you have no discernment over who you choose. That means right. that you're thinking chemistry draws me to good partnership. And then I just ask, have you ever been drawn to someone who's not good for you? Almost everybody's like, hell yeah. Because we're being drawn to some of these other factors that we're evolutionarily drawn towards. So if we can start to make a discerning choice between who we're drawn towards and who is healthy for us, we start to cultivate healthy attraction and chemistry and we start to find dependability, loyalty, emotionality, attractive. Now, this doesn't mean you can't throw out the idea of, a partner who you feel safe with, you know, all those other things. It's that when we start to choose the people we say we want, other people will start to emulate what's being chosen. And I would say that emotionality and emotional agility and fluency is the currency of the future relationship. Yeah, agreed. Yeah. But we're kind of in a, like everything, you know, we're in a flux. We're in a flux where things are reorganizing. And a lot of us find ourselves in relationships that we're, chosen based on previous priorities yep. or what we were taught were our priorities. You hear that a lot. Someone's like, well, right. I got married because they were like safe. They're the same religion. They're this, yep. they're that. And, and I was at, a certain age. Right. right. And then at yeah. 40, they're like, I don't actually, I'm not even attracted to them. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that's a whole other can it's of worms. Is there anything we can do as women to open the space if you're, you know, whether it's a friendship, a work relationship, a marriage, like, is there anything we can do to open up the space to allow men to be the men in our lives to be a little more emotive? Uh, I'll give you an example. So our, my son is 20. And I remember when he was a little kid, I started to see, I also have a daughter and I started to see that when there was a conflict, he wanted to look away. That that was more in his, and, and I had read a book called The Wonder of Boys, and I, I saw that that was an issue. But then as a woman, I know that when we're in a conflict situation with a man, when a man looks away, we feel unheard. Yeah. So I would tell him at a young age, I would say, when you look me in the eye, I actually know you're listening to me. So can we have this conversation with you, you, us looking at each other so I know that you're hearing me? And I, I don't know if that was right or not, but I remember trying to express to him at a young age that I needed certain cues as a woman to be able to feel like I was, you, that he was hearing me. Mm -hmm. And so I feel like, and when I listen to you, I feel a little bit the same way, like, how can we as women open up the space so that men feel safe to s express their emotions? Is there anything we can do to create that open dialogue? I mean, first, acknowledging you for how you approach that. I, I would be really curious uh, to hear, I, I would love you to ask him, like, do you remember me doing that? Mm. How has that impacted your relationships today? Mm. Did that feel safe for you? Did, you yeah. know, just to hear him. Um, a lot of that is modeled with mom, mm. right? The, the relationship with women. Mm -hmm. And sometimes when our partners, like if let's say 
women didn't get raised with emotive fathers and then their husbands maybe were not, then their relationship with their son can be impacted because they mm. don't know how to hold space for that. Maybe they see yeah. them as a boy and so they like as a male, so they don't they might even unconsciously reject parts of their their son. Um although I want to be mindful to come back to that idea of like, how do women do all the things to create mm. emotional yeah, well safety said. for men? Yeah. Because well I think said. what'll happen is, and I'm sure for a lot of women listening, is like, why do I wait, I gotta do all this? Like, what about them? And I'd yeah. say when we come in with that energy of like jadedness, that can be off-putting, but I don't want to minimize mm. the, the, tr the truth of why someone might feel that way. Um, but I think it's just having those conversations of saying, hey, you know, I, I notice you don't tend to like to talk about your feelings. I'm wondering, is there anything I can do that mm. would make you feel safer to talk about anything? Is there anything that would... Uh, is there any question I could ask? Mm -hmm. Or is there a way I respond that could be helpful or isn't helpful? And then Beautiful. we allow our partner to tell us. We allow them to say, yeah, actually, here's what I need. And, you know, when people are not connected to what they need, it can be really hard to start to develop a connection to it, which yes. we were talking about, like, how many people actually know their values? A lot of people don't even know what they need. Right. And so when you make relationships about other people's needs, when you start to stand in your own, again, that reorganizes the relationship. So I think when we fear triggering our partners so that they can't open up emotionally, it again causes the shutdown mm -hmm. of conversation. And then the person pursuing the dialogue ends up continuing to carry this burden. Mm -hmm. So another really great way to do it is to work with a therapist or a coach because right. what they end up doing is they end up basically being the translator for both people's needs and wounds. Mm. And, you know, it takes two people who are like, I'm actually interested in changing how we do this. If yep. you could start there, like, hey, how we communicate, does it work for you? And the other person's, if it's not working, they're probably like, nah, it doesn't. I, you, right. you annoy me or whatever the right. thing is, um, or I feel like I shut down, or I feel like you're constantly bickering, or whatever it is. If you can just get to, we want to do it differently, okay, mm. how do we do now that? Now the door's open. Yeah, yeah, what do you suggest? And they might have a suggestion. I will tell you, after talking to a lot of women, that they would love for their husbands to go to a therapist with them. And I that and, and, there's, and the husband doesn't want to go. I... Yeah. I've seen that over and over and over again. In fact, friend, a friend of ours, really close friends, they, their relationship just ended because he, he refused to go. She did exactly what you said, where she tried, she tried, he wouldn't go, she left, and that woke him up. And um, so, again, I think this, this conversation is a beautiful um, opening for all of us to see how we can connect better as men and women, regardless of whether it's an intimate relationship or not. But I, I'm like a huge fan of therapy. I'm a huge fan of talking out my emotions with Me my too. friends. Yeah. And I'd love for the men in my life to be that too. But I also realize that's not perhaps in their desire. And what do you do in those situations? Well, you know, for men, I think a great intro is to go to a men's group. That, I mean, all of it requires this putting down the armor. 
Yeah. And we can't force someone to put down the armor. Yeah. And as I said earlier, and maybe I, I probably didn't declare it, but it's like most people unconsciously in their mind have a timeline. Like mm-hmm. I'm going to invite if they don't accept that invitation, if there is not a change in let's say six months, then I'm going to have to take a different step. Mm. So, you know, when we actually approach our partner from that perspective of like, this needs to change. And here's, I'm committed to doing this. Here's what I'm committed to. I'm so interested in creating a powerful, emotive relationship with you, something connective. And I, I want to go deeper. I feel like I don't know you anymore. And I mm. want you to know me. We have this mm. opportunity. Do you want to do that? And if the other person says no, often the pattern change for the person who's always been chasing is to finally not chase and to Mm. say, okay, so what I hear you saying is that you're not interested in that. Did I get that right? Yeah. Okay, well, if you're not interested in that, then we're at an end here. We're at an impasse. Yeah. And when you're ready to potentially invest in it, I am here to have that conversation. But at this point, I can't chase you anymore. It's up to you to move towards what you desire. And if what you desire is not this, then I respect that. Yeah. Because what happens there is now we're saying like, you have the sovereign choice to say, you don't want to pursue this relationship. And I'm making a sovereign choice that I want to pursue this relationship, but under these guidelines. And if you don't want to meet me there, then now I'm in sovereign choice that this doesn't work for us either. And that to me is this powerful individuating that then now we have two adults, mostly, who get to choose what path they're going on. And we're no longer trying to keep each other in this relationship because that's what you're supposed to do. Or people who get divorced hurt their children. You know, it's, I get asked that a lot. Like, how do you, should you stay together for the kids? Mm. And I'm like, that's the wrong question. It's Mm. if you stay together for kids, do something about it. Because when you look Mm. at the health of children, ideally parents together love each other. Parents apart love each other. Mm. parents together dislike each other, parents not together dislike each other, treat each other disrespectfully. Those aren't better than each other. They're the same. Yeah. St- yeah. And what you teach your children is to stay in difference, to stay in relationships that aren't healthy, to not be able to let go of something with grace. And that's why as adults, mm. when we witness our parents do that, we don't know how to leave with grace. We don't know how... We're because their divorce had an impact on us. We think that the our divorce or our whatever mm. will will impact them, and it doesn't mean it doesn't impact the children. But teaching how two adults can navigate something gracefully and love each other when it ends—that's unconditional love. Mm. Oh, that's so beautiful. The, the you know, I was thinking as you were talking, two books that I read when my kids were little little were "The Wonder of Boys" and "The Wonder of Girls," and. One of the things that I gleamed little pieces from both those books was um, as parents with boys, we tend to be like, you know, how you doing, little man, buck up, little guy. You know, it's very much like I remember really even catching myself with my son 
not calling him a man when he was like six months old. <laughs> right? Like we're like, come I'm on, like, a little, I man. Said little man. Yeah, and I might have. Yeah. But you don't but those subtle cues are yeah. sort of like grooming them for this patriarchal position. And then with women in the wonder of girls, what would often happen is that we compliment little girls on on their hair and yes. how pretty they look. I, my daughter had this really cool, like big hair, blonde, curly hair, and everywhere we went, when we were in supermarkets, people would be like, you're so beautiful, you're so beautiful. And I would always make a separate comment and say, yeah, and she's smart too, yeah. and she's kind, and she's funny. And I would always add another attribute because I didn't want her to see, hey, the world gets you and loves you for how you look. Mm, and we, I think so we we forget that that messaging comes to play now when we're in a long-term relationship, 100%. you know, especially. And it, and those are the things that we're butting up against. And I going back to this pandemic idea, I just feel like we have a moment to rebrand this. We have a moment to rebrand masculine, feminine. I mean, there's so much that's changing in our world. And I, what I'm learning from this conversation with you is, as a woman, is we have a moment to open up the door for men to be able to express themselves differently. And, and yeah, yeah, and to understand that we are not the same, but also right. there is the way we navigate emotion is different, and whether that is either developmentally or through socialization as well. I'm sure there, you know, there's lots of confounding factors to both those things. Because what you're talking about, I remember there's a study where they give people a baby girl and a baby boy, and they already start to use language that's different, mm. which of course will shape, as you're saying, how they see themselves. I remember I interviewed Dr. Laura McNally, and she said that when children are like nine and 10, that's when girls are being judged on how their body looks and boys are being yep. judged on how their body performs. Wow. And like a boy can, you know, do whatever to potentially become faster, the fastest kid in the class or whatever. But for girls, they have to change their body, something that, and so she said that a mm -hmm. lot of children where historically a child or someone as an adult would go into a plastic surgeon with like a picture of Tom Cruise's nose. Now they're using these like Facetune apps and weird shit filters, you know, stuff like that. And so we also have to understand that we're growing up in a time where social media is amplifying these things yes. too, right? And yes, like you can make millions of dollars based on your butt. You can make millions of dollars right. based on the appearance of having a Lamborghini and helping people yes. make money. Again, I'm not shaming any of those things, but it's very real that if we place our self-worth in how we look or in our status, what happens is, is when those things get taken away, you won't know who you are. You won't believe right. you have value. And you know, I say to people often that the universe will remove anything that you place your value in to remind you that it doesn't live there. Mm. And so when we lose a relationship and we feel empty inside, it's just that the part of you that you defined yourself with, with the relationship is now vacant for you to fill, which is wow. a very different way of thinking about it. And wow. so as we create this future of being able to relate and be able to be emotionally fluent, if we can step into that radical responsibility for how we show up emotionally, because what I think about is like, if I'm in a relationship and I show up fully, I'm like, okay, I had all the hard conversations. I invited them towards the thing I want. I really even got pretty good at language and they still didn't want to meet me. 
it's not my shit. It's not my shit. I know that when I look back upon my life, I can be proud of how I showed up here. And that means I can let it go or dive deeper into it if they choose. And what ends up happening is we end up building a really expanded self through relationship. And then either they meet us in the future or someone else does. But when you're in that state of flow, it actually won't matter to you who it is. Oh my God, that was so beautiful. That was that was so eloquent. I, I really honestly love the way you put words together. So I, I just want to compliment you on that. And as Thank somebody you. who really geeks it. out on words, that was beautiful. So, so let me finish up with this thought. I have uh, two questions for you that I ask every guest this year. One is, do you have a, a self-love practice that you mm. actually do on a daily basis? And the second one is, what do you think your superpower is that you bring to the world? Gosh, my self-love practice, it kind of shifts based on what I'm needing. But I'd say the one thing I always come back to is exercise. Um, mm. That one yeah. is a big one for me. Is like needing to move weights, needing to be very mindful about my, my health, my body, my vitality. Mm. Uh, as a father, that's especially become, I'm like, woof, man, I realize now I'm like, I must have had a lot of spare time <laughs> before <laughs> I had a baby. Oh, yeah, yeah. How old is your, how old is your <laughs> He's son? only four months, and I'm like. Oh, God, yes. You had a I lot to, more. <laughs> I said to Kai, my wife, I was like, man, I must have been f- around a lot before. Yeah. Because, like, I, anyway, yep. so the first part is working out, and you know, there's other ones like meditation, writing. I've been, I'm not sure if you've ever heard of The Miracle Morning by Hal Elrod. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah I brought so, him, he's been on the podcast. Oh my God, he's great. I love his he's energy. He's awesome. And so I had him on the podcast and I was like, damn, this guy is inspiring. I'm gonna do all those things and see how it impacts my life. And so it's been amazing. One thing I've noticed about having a kid is I'll be like, oh, I'll get up before mom and him. But now mm. they just keep getting up earlier. I'm like, yo. Oh, yeah. <laughs> It's like, you're killing me here. Um, and then what is my superpower? That's such a good question. You know what? I'd say it's levity. I'd mm. say it's that, like one thing that I've found in my own experience of myself, but also in my experience of speaking at conferences and stuff and workshops and retreats is that is that I I allow people to feel into the vulnerable things, but then find the humor in their experience because Mm. to me it's like if you can't laugh at the ridiculousness of the things we choose the things we do then you won't be able to let it go you know you got to find the joy and the humor in even our mistakes and and i I think that's a superpower that i'm what the the world needs that superpower for sure and and we take things quite serious and personal so mark this has been incredible i really I, i I really appreciate this conversation. I have been out really talking about what women need in the world. And, you know, about five minutes into you and I chatting, I was like, you're the guy to talk about what, how we can create this beautiful space for men as well. So I just thank you. How do people find you? Well, thank you for having me. It's such an Mm -hmm. honor. And for the listeners, the watchers, thanks for trading your time to listen to me. Mm -hmm. I I don't take Mm -hmm. that for granted. Um, You can find me at createthelove.com is where all my relationship-based courses are. Um, I have a podcast called The Mark Rose Podcast. And um, I also have a Substack that's just substack.markrose.com where I just write about my, my musings. 
I love it. I love it. Well, thank you. Keep keep spreading love in the world. And we're just so grateful that you came and had this conversation. And as always, let us know how we can support the work you're doing. I, I feel like the, those of us that are really working to create a deeper human, we just need to, we need to rally around each other. So I appreciate your part in, in changing human consciousness. So thank well, you. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for joining me in today's episode. I love bringing thoughtful discussions about all things health to you. If you enjoyed it, we'd love to know about it. So please leave us a review, share it with your friends, and let me know what your biggest takeaway is.